It's the Burt Cohen Show. For, oh, 200 or so years, America has been a two-party system. We have had it uh, so that there are choices that people can make. It's not a one-party system. That's a different kind of system, and we don't want that. We want to have at least two parties. And for many years, there has been a clear identity of the Republican Party and of the Democratic Party. Well, that seems to have changed quite a bit. We know who the Republicans are, but who the heck are the Democrats? I'm very pleased to have as guest on the Burt Cohen Show today, Michael Brenner, Senior Fellow at the Center for Transatlantic Relations, Professor of International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks for being with us, Michael. Glad, uh, glad to join you. And uh, you have a new article on the Huffington Post about what you call the Democrats' political suicide. Uh, Michael Brenner points the finger of blame largely at President Barack Obama, who, quote, has been the point man for this bizarre self-immolation, unquote. And like Howard Dean, who recently said the Republican message was, we're not Obama, no substance whatsoever. And what was the Democrats' message? Oh, we're not either. You can't win if you're afraid. Where was the Democratic Party? You got to stand for something if you're going to win. That's uh, what uh, Howard Dean said. And uh, our guest, uh, Michael Brenner, writes of a fatal mimicking of the Democrats' Republican rivals. Well, again, Michael, thanks for being with us. President Obama's only been in office since January 2009. How long has this been going on, this self-immolation by Democrats? Well, in some respects, it's been going on uh, for, for more than 30 years. Uh, the Democrats uh, lost uh, their identity and lost their, their heart uh, for, you know, for political struggle, you might say, with the Reagan phenomenon, which was more than two victories by Ronald Reagan. But it uh, was uh, sort of the first... Uh, the first stage in what has been a very successful Republican campaign to to reshape and reconfigure the entire public dialogue about politics in the United States. It's more than about politics; it's really about government in the United States. In other words, the the consensus that uh, sort of emerged after the great innovations of of, of the New Deal, a consensus to which. Uh, a very large part, the largest part of the Republican Party joined, um, was, uh, became sort of directly challenged by what was at that time, early on even, uh, the Goldwater Wing and 
on the Reagan wing of the Republican Party. And uh, their success within the Republican Party has been eclipsed by their general success in sort of undermining the, you know, the New Deal consensus, if you like, on what constituted the role of government in American life. Uh, and now we're seeing the fruits of it, the fruits of their victory. Yes, and kind of a redefinition of, of what... Uh masquerades as as two parties, it seems to me. Now, we all recognize that 2010 was a terrible failure for Democrats. And and you write, what should have been 1934 became 1994. Obviously, you know a bit about history. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. Not everybody uh, is familiar with what happened. I I, I realize that. Uh, When FDR won the 1932 election, began uh, after his inauguration uh, to take sort of, you know, bold steps. This not only rather quickly produced uh, some positive economic effects, but it restored a good measure of uh, the lost confidence of the American people. And that was demonstrated in the the off year, in other words, the congressional elections of 1934, in which the Democrats substantially increased the majority. In uh, uh, in both houses, and uh, you know another factor at work was then was the clear sort of demonstration of the depression that the Republican philosophy, which in effect gave uh, paramountcy to big business interests in directing the economic affairs of the United States, right. and that was opposed to any sort of government uh, intervention to ameliorate things that that Republican philosophy was bankrupt in the cause of a national catastrophe. Well, the same thing happened in 2008. Um, when one can and, and find the roots of the great sort of financial collapse of 2008, again in a, a, a revived sort of Republican sort of philosophy that was at variance with the, uh, you know, the, the New Deal consensus, if you like. Um, and rather than, than making the stock, the connection, which objectively is, is there, between the Republican philosophy and, uh, you know, the near-death experience which the United States barely survived in 2008 and 2009, I mean, that was an enormous, enormous political as well as a policy failure on the part of the White House and the Democratic Party generally. In other words, they did not stick the Republicans with the blame for what happened, which is sort of elementary politics, and in this case, even elementary politics sort of founded on on objective uh, truth. And so the great simmering resentments in American society, among Americans who were both scared and stiff by the, those events, and many of whom were continuing to suffer as, as they are till today, uh, instead of generating further momentum be, be, behind a swing back to you know, a, a more liberal consensus, uh, because the, the, the Democrats didn't do their job, those angers, those frustrations, those emotions, were directed at the Obama administration. 
and indirectly as a Democrat. Hmm. And uh, as a consequence, uh, in the 2010 off-year election, Republicans made the dramatic gains, particularly in the House, sort of contrary to all political logic and contrary to hmm. what conditions in the country were, were like. We are talking with Professor Michael Brenner about uh, Democrats committing political suicide. And it does seem like, as you describe it, uh, what happened in 2010 and thereafter was something the Democrats tend to be pretty good at, and that's snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, it, it just it amazes me how they can miss it. Now, you know, the, the Democratic Party was was hurt very badly with the election of 2010, you know, after Obama came in in, in 2009. What did party leaders, Democratic Party leaders, do? How did they react? And in what ways did they learn from history and plan for the future? Or did they learn at all after 2010? It, it, I'm not sure that they did. What do you think, uh, Professor Brennan? No, they learned, they learned nothing. I mean, their behavior over the ensuing four years uh, has matched what it was in, uh, between 2008 and 2010 which is why they lost a successive congressional election. And let's face it, only Obama got reelected only because of the ineptitude of the Republican <laughs> candidates. Now, the Republicans, by getting so far out on a far-right wing, a limb, uh, have themselves made themselves greatly vulnerable. And if you'd had a, a, an adept and willful uh, Democratic uh, leadership, uh, ready to soar off that limb, I think we would have seen just the reverse of what's happened. In other words, in, in my view, you've had two parties, each of which trying to commit suicide, they're taking different routes away. <laughs> but the Republicans having this tremendous sort of fighting spirit and aggressiveness, uh -huh. um, you know, have, have prevailed. And the Democrats simply refuse and refuse to this day to acknowledge that the, the course that they have chosen, and I think we have to use that word, um, because there have been tremendous errors of judgment made, mm. uh, have set themselves on a path that will lead to one defeat after another. Their only salvation two years from now will be if, again, the Republicans sort of select a, uh, someone from the, you know, the crackpot wing of the party, which is a very real possibility, yes. in which case a Democratic candidate might, uh, might slip through. But in effect, they have yielded so much political ground. They have yielded so much philosophical ground. They have accepted so much of the Republican way of viewing public issues. They have accepted the idea so completely that, that, that government is a spent force. But mm. uh, even if they win, the country loses, as it is lost under Barack Obama. As we've seen, regression on every front, regression from what for, you know, 70 years was the core Democratic platform. And I don't know about you, uh, Michael, but it seems to me that over the last, oh, say, 20 years or so, celebrity has mattered much more than it ever has before, that people uh, don't necessarily take a lot of time to look at policy positions. But 
they, they see an image, a brand, if you will, and I, and I hate the overuse of that term. However, if somebody comes across as strong, as clear, uh, you know, that, that you get what this candidate is and you have a sense of it, to me, that is very, very powerful. And if, if Democrats are just like, yeah, we're kind of like you, we're Republican light, and they see what the Republicans stand for, that's not going to make it. And again, I am fearful for, you know, as, as somebody who considers myself very patriotic and dedicated to the traditions of the United States, to depend on the 2016 presidential candidate from the Republican Party to uh, destroy him or herself, that's kind of scary. We need to offer a real clear alternative, well, I think. Yes, in this sense, the American political system has collapsed, and the governmental system, in some respects, is on the brink of collapsing. Right. I, I mean, uh, leaving aside for a moment the differences of the philosophy and the debates over what course of policy to take on the big issues of the day, the sheer competence of the U.S. government has deteriorated badly. It's everything from, you know, the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies, to the to the sheer ineptitude of the uh, of the federal government and its failure uh, even to, to 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 mount a website for the Affordable Care Health Act in over four years of time. I mean, there's no there's no excuse for that, and, and the incompetence of Americans' regulatory agencies, the rampant careerism whereby anyone who achieves a position of, of responsibility immediately begins to look at how they can parachute into the private sector and, and earn six, eight, or ten times more than they are in government, which both compromises their performance in government uh, and also ensures that the caliber of people in these important positions is not, is not what it should be. We see this demonstrated every week. So the crisis, I think, is both political and governmental, and the two are interlaced. Yeah, they are interlaced, certainly, and there is a difference, that is uh, for sure. If you just tuned into the Burt Cohen Show, our guest today is Michael Brenner, Senior Fellow with the Center for Transatlantic Relations, Professor of International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. We're talking about a new article of his about the Democrats' political suicide uh, and uh, the the incompetence or just uh, self-protection, the CYA <laughs> attitude, I think has led to what you earlier, just a few minutes ago, called a great simmering resentment among people. And the only entity, political entity, that seems to be tapping in to that great simmering resentment is the Tea Party. And uh, that just amazes me. I mean, the, the populist mantle for Democrats to yield that to the you know far right of the Republican Party is just inexcusable. Your thoughts? Right. Well, well, popular sentiment. But well, let's 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 remind ourselves that there is only one political vocabulary in the United States, and that's populism. Uh, whatever interest you're promoting, whatever stand uh, standpoint from which you're viewing things, the only language which is used. And only permissible in effect is populist language, and that's rooted in the country's sort of you know history, and sure. ethos, and its self-image, and its uh, and its mythology. 
And it's always had two negative poles or two negative reference points. I mean, one was the establishment, by which is about big business, particularly banks, finance, et cetera, the people control, who control things or try to control things and keep down uh, the common man. Right. Uh, and the other was the direction, the other direction which had taken, the other pole of criticism was government, because Americans have never really legitimized in their public, in their philosophy about public affairs, the notion that this state is inevitable, the state is inescapable, government has to exist, and government has to be relied on more and more to accomplish the things and to provide the services which which people want. And uh, you tend to get the different uh, stresses and accents on these two facets of populism, depending on circumstances and depending on which party is more effective in, in tapping these, as you say, these often diffuse, unfocused, mm -hmm. not terribly well-informed right. attitudes, sentiments, and emotions. And again, here's where the Democrats completely failed, because in 2008 and early 2009, populism, populist sentiment was directed against Wall Street. Right. The Tea Party was able to turn that around. Well, the Tea Party originally had a mix of both, and then it very effectively was manipulated by yes. some big interests, well, particularly the Koch brothers, yeah. and directed and channeled all of the critical energy against government and support of an array of, uh, you know, of right-wing, uh, you know, nostrums. Mm -hmm. And that's how they have taken over the Republican Party and that, in that uh, same manner that they have uh, reshaped American political uh, dialogue. And I, I wonder, and I want to get to your very interesting list of ingredients for the poisonous concoction that Democrats uh, are eagerly consuming. How it just clearly some higher ups, some highly paid consultants, seems to have almost universally come to the conclusion that Democrats need to walk away from our tradition, right. that Democrats need to give up right. on, on fighting for what we believe in, to abandon right. our identity. How, how, how is it that, that all these high-paid consultants have, have come to that conclusion? I mean, it clearly doesn't work. Well, let's remember these high-paid consultants uh, uh, only win half the time. They lose the other half of the time. Yeah. Um, Seems like more talk than... about pres presidential primary elections, most of them lose. So I'm right. not sure they're really that brilliant or insightful. Right. And look at the performance of Democratic consultants, you know, over the last sort of six years and the results that, that they've produced. Their outlook and motivations, though, is critical. I mean, yeah, the Democratic, the core Democratic constituencies, in effect, and let's not... Uh, you know, be coy about it, have been sold out by Democratic Party leadership. From yes. Barack Obama in the White House to Governor Cuomo in New York to the congressional leadership. And it was Bill Clinton in 1996, don't forget, who proclaimed that the era of big government is over Right. in a public address. 
something that, uh, you know, a bold and, and statement, which in effect meant jettisoning it, jettisoning the entire heritage of the, you know, of the Democratic Party. This, the, the, the idea was very clear that government is bad, and the bigger it is, the worse it is, which is absolutely absurd, and of course is, is, is spouting, in effect, the Republican, uh, the Republican line. Now, when we get down to people like Clinton and Barack Obama, the Democratic Party leadership generally, I think you have a couple of things going on. First of all, there's a lack of conviction. Hmm. One, these people don't have any conviction. Does Bill Clinton have conviction about any issue? Does Hillary, no. does Barack Obama? I don't think that you could identify anything or, or, or reduce evidence that they're committed to anything. And this goes well beyond calculations of political expediency. And so there's, there's a lack of conviction. Uh, and the lack of affirmation of, of commitments to the to the traditional democratic constituency has cost them dearly. Yes. So it's not political expediency per se. They lack a conviction. Two, they lack dedication to and commitment to you know the core values and programs of the old democratic coalition. I mean, it is an administration who only really gets energized when it's attacking their own supporters and voters, or <laughs> school teachers, who have become the object of a campaign of vilification, <sighs> to mind, led by the president, and Arnie Duncan, his, his secretary of education. And I think that is about because, because they have bought into a very significant part of the whole sort of post-Reagan philosophy. In other words, the effect of the Reagan years, as I mentioned some minutes ago, was to influence the thinking and the outlook of the American political class generally, not just the Republican Party. Hmm. Don't remember, on, on two or three occasions, Barack Obama was asked in interviews, which president do you admire most for his performance? He said, Ronald Reagan. He did? Oh my. Wow. I mean, this is Stunning from a man who's not only head of the Democratic Party and a uh, candidate, but if we come to the you know to race issues, I mean, if Ronald Reagan's views had prevailed, Barack Obama and his family would still have to drink cokes in the back seat of the family car when they travel south of the Mason-Dixon line. Wow! And it was we talk about uh, the presidency of Bill Clinton and and. You know the uh, adoption of corporate rule. It was his administration. Right. People often forget it was Bill Clinton that repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, which led directly to the financial meltdown of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, right. where it gave it just gave the store away to the biggest of the big banks. And have Democrats done anything in recognition of this major economic failure? If they have, I haven't seen it. No, they haven't. And in fact, the, the, the legislation passed, like the uh, Dodd-Frank's bill. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's virtually meaningless. And, and, and in fact, nothing structurally has changed since 2008. That legislation was diluted, watered down, weakened. Um, 
and I think the administration made no effort to to lend support to a serious bill, and just look at the people whom Obama appointed uh, to his administration, and not only that, in the four years it took to write the regulation, hmm. this implementation, uh, the bill, uh, whatever remains and whatever elements of it carry the potential for doing anything consequential, uh, were, were neutralized. Hmm. True, because the administration did not fight this in the Fed, the SEC, the Office of Control of the Currency, etc. And that became a playing field for the business and financial lobby. And Obama's appointees in those agencies went along with that. And uh, as, a, as a result, um, we are no better protect, protected no, against no. predatory practices of the big financial interests uh, than we were in 2008. And this is evident if we simply look at the business pages of the New York Times and every week is another revelation, another story, another expose. Uh, demonstrating that the country's economy and therefore the country's well-being is sort of hostage to the predatory mm. instincts of, of of the big banks. That's simply the reality of it. And you can argue that it's not a bad thing right. to be an honest position. <laughs> we can argue that it's better than anything else if you fear government regulation. Right. Uh, but you cannot argue against the fact that this is the case. And to me, you know, so much of, of uh, politics and elections are, are waged on the TV screens. And if you turn the sound off entirely, that is the image that a lot of people get. Does somebody, again, any candidate, look like he or she is standing and fighting for something? We have very few people who are doing that. I Again, I think there's a tremendous hunger for that. Democrats are not right. standing and fighting for anything. And no. I, I want to look into your, it was very interesting, list of ingredients, specific ingredients in this uh, uh, poisonous concoction that the Democrats have been drinking uh, with such great enthusiasm. Uh, the, the first of the list of ingredients is to alienate your key constituencies. Tell us about that, Professor Brenner, please. Well, I already mentioned the sort of assault on unions, uh, sorry, on, on teachers and, you know, teachers union, but teachers generally. And the way in which teachers have been stigmatized by this administration is somehow the cause not only of shortcomings of American education, but thereby much of what's wrong with the country, is disgraceful. It's also politically very stupid. Uh, and this is occurring, by the way, at the state level, as well as at the national level. Look what Mario Cuomo has been doing in, in New York. Uh, and the sort of charter school craze is the right. central part of the campaign. And there, well, it's difficult to get into details of it. The whole charter, scale, uh, charter school phenomenon is actually fraud. As Diane Ravitch, who in a way is the godmother, of the movement and has now not only broken it, but has, uh, you know, apostatized, and she's, she has written, you know, very cogently on why it's a mistake. 
mistaken approach to American education. But in any case, okay, he teaches. And he sold out the trade unions. He's given no backing to the trade unions in, in contradiction of various pledges made in campaign. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to realize the importance of trade unions as a countervailing force to the power of business uh, management. Oh, for sure. Now, the growing just... inequalities in the country oh, above which he made one speech and then has never returned to it, ah. cannot be dealt with. I mean, there are lots of reasons for it, and some all within the power of the government to deal with. And in fact, some could be controlled by, uh, influenced by executive order. But you cannot deal with it on a nationwide basis unless you have a reemergence and a strengthening of trade unions. And Obama refuses to, to accept it. He would be quite happy, quite frankly, if there were trade unions. Mm. in this country. Mm. He has a, a sort of a, a, a technocratic view of government's governance, but it's not government technocrats. It's a combination of elites. And key component of that are business and financial elites. And Barack is something in Barack Obama in his mentality and his personality. which leads him to want to associate with and in Instinctively to defer to the authority of all of society's elites. It's evident hmm. with Wall Street. It's evident with regard to the Pentagon. Yes. It's evident with regard to the intelligence uh, community. So uh, it's a peculiar kind of technology in which the pillars of society do look after the little people. Hmm. <laughs> and, of course, the evidence is they're not looking after them very well. No. And as far as the private sector is concerned, these people would just look at the little people the way the pharaohs looked at the pyramid buildings. Uh, doesn't trouble. But what you do is you have a man with all kinds of personal hang-ups who philosophically is sort of a Rockefeller Republican, hmm. nominally the head of the, the Democratic Party. And I get the sense that it's very clear to me that your average American doesn't is mistrustful of elitism. There's this basic, once again, simmering resentment against elites. And yet the elites are more in power now than they ever have been before. Right. And, well, and That's a good point. And again... Dis- oh, it's a very good point. Well, some of that has to do with the fact that the American people are more ignorant than they've yes. ever been. Absolutely. And p- uh, part of that, I think, not sorry to interrupt, but back in the Reagan era, I remember political cartoon. I got to dig it out. Uh, talking about dumbing down America, specifically intentionally destroying public education so that people would participate less yep. and feel more powerless. Well, this is really hard to pin down because, I mean, it's, it's not that 20 people sit down in a room and Pop this all out. Right. They're not that company. Very strong convergence of interest, financial, political, uh, interest in, in elitism, sort of per se. And the extreme and now reactionary, it's not conservative, orientation right. is pronounced and it dominates its, its affairs. So keeping people ignorant is part of this. Yes. Now, if you look at, at the mainstream media, there are a number of elements involved. Yes, there are those who try to manipulate it. 
yes, business and financial interests have an enormous sort of sway on what is reported as news and and how it's packaged. Yes. Yes, there's the influence of the, the, the military intelligence establishment, if you like. Mm-hmm. But once this has become ensconced and rooted now, then another factor comes into play, and that's careerism. Nobody wants to call it into question. And as a, as a consequence, the media are not doing their job. People, individual citizens are not performing their responsibilities as citizens and trying to keep themselves informed. So you have a combination of a populace that is diffident, un, you know, uh, not willing to expend the time to find out what's going on. Yes, yeah, willing to, and at the same time being being brainwashed into accepting all of the foundation stones of this, whatever you want to call it, sort of conservative, certainly anti-liberal sort of view of American public life, public policy, and. Um, and and politics. Now, this, of course, is such a, a tremendous liability for the Democratic Party, and particularly for progressive or liberal Democrats. You'd think that they would recognize and try to counteract it somehow. And their failure to do that, to operate it at, at the grassroots, uh, is, again, an, an element and the sort of stunning failure on that part. And that's a failure in defending their own interests because how they expect to win elections this way is, you know, is is beyond me because you can't. Definitely not. And yet the potential, I'm convinced, is there. If you just tuned into the Burt Cohen Show, our guest today is Michael Brenner. We're talking about a new article he has written on the Huffington Post about the Democrats' political suicide. And, and another part of the ingredients of the poisonous Kool-Aid uh, is that... And it's amazed me, as a civil libertarian, Democrats have always had defense of civil liberties, robust defense of civil liberties, as central to our very identity. Yet, Democratic leaders have embraced the so-called Patriot Act uh, and have hidden away from taking on the outrageous government spying on citizens through the National Security Agency. I don't get it. Why have Democrats bought into that and abandoned the whole base of civil liberties? Some of it is personality. I mean, Barack Obama has done more to undermine American civil liberties than George Bush has done. This is true. That's simply a matter of record. Again, you might say this is a terrific thing because we have to do it to defend the country. Yeah, right. I think it's a ludicrous idea, but anyway, you might believe it. But there's no denying it. That's there on the record. At the very mo- this very moment, he's moving heaven and earth to make sure that the Senate report on the abuses of the CIA doesn't doesn't appear. Wow. Uh, and and that's one. clamping down on j- journalists, and mm-hmm. clamping down on journalists. He's done more about that yeah. than, than anybody else. And uh, civil liberties. Uh, is, but it, it's not just Barack Obama. These people have also they've lost conviction, they've lost their nerve. Uh, an interesting exercise, and some of your listeners might have be old enough, have enough knowledge to remember this. You compare the figures in the United States Senate, the 
personalities in the 1970s, let's say, and into the 80s with the Senate today. And the contrast is stunning. Yes. The caliber of people, their individualism, uh, their independence, not that that was a golden age in which you had, uh, mm. you know, a Senate filled with paragons of virtue, but compared to today, I mean, these lame, weak, sort of careerist non-entities, you had giants at that time. And this, again, I urge you, your, your listeners, go back, just go to Wikipedia, look up the list. Any one of a dozen of whom would stand like a giant among today's pygmies. I mean, let's face it, those of us who are discontented with the, the direction of the Democratic Party can think of only one person we can, who conceivably could counteract that trend, and that's Elizabeth Warren. Well, there's... If we were asked, and somebody once asked me that, who would you appoint as president if you could appoint somebody? Mm. And for the first time, in didn't even have to be an elected official, but for the first time, in, uh, or a politician, first time in my life, I couldn't come up with an answer. Again, the exception of, 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 of Elizabeth Warren. I mean, well, there's a sad state of affairs. Now, the Republicans, oh, yeah. on the other hand, have a number of very aggressive, most of them right-wing, unelectable, oh, yeah. thank, thank goodness, at the national level anyway. But those people fight and argue, they get to the headlines. I mean, what Democratic senator did you ever see in the headlines? <laughs> That's a good point. I don't even bother to go to a microphone anymore. No, I'm living at the, uh, at the moment in, in Texas, of course, in which the Democratic Party, in large parts of the states, has to seek to exist. Right. But... Still, 42% or 43% of voters here vote for Democrats, and yet they have no leadership. And talking about going to, to, to a microphone, I mean, the Democrats, for example, in the state legislatures around here, don't even know the microphone exists. You know, that's a very interesting... Months go by in which you don't see a, de- a, a state Democratic leader mentioned. And it's not that different, frankly, although you have, of course, a Democratic president in the in, in, in the U.S. as well. I mean, look at the names which dominate the headlines. They're all right-wing Republicans yes. or Republican leadership. And it seems because they're a cowed. They're just afraid to fight. That's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, that, you know, who dominates the headlines? It's the right-wing Republicans. Well, and Even the New York Times puts them on the, oh, yeah. the front cover of the magazine section. Uh... You know, regularly. They even put Glenn Beck on the cover of the magazine section. They even put Ann Coulter on the. Now, now the New York Times is dedicated to reviving Chris Christie for some oh my. Oh inexplicable my. reason. Um, There's a lot for Democrats to talk about. And there is one senator who is not yet a Democrat, but I have a sneaking suspicion he. Well, I'm pretty sure he's going to run for president, and it better well be as a Democrat, and I'm pretty sure he will, and that's uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Right. And, you know, well, because Bernie Sanders is the other person. I mean, he... Yeah. And, and, but he's not technically a Democrat right now. Yeah, that doesn't make any difference. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. But, you know, Elizabeth Warren is the only... I mean, there are, there are two or three others, like uh, Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown, yes. But he... He may run for president, He's not too. very... 
conservative, and he disappears for six months at a time. Oh, my. Talk about names in the news. When was the last time you, you, you saw Sherrod Brown saying something that got him onto the front page or the second page or the third or the fourth page of the New York Times? Well, who, aside from us politicos, has even heard of Sherrod Brown, quite frankly? You know, he's just not known. Uh, no, nobody. Right. And the readiness of the whole Democratic establishment to line up between Hillary behind Hillary uh. Clinton. I mean, the Clintons sold out long ago, lock, stock, and barrel. Among, in my view, her other liabilities, she's not a liberal or progressive. And, and how is she even a Democrat, I'd like to know? It's to, it's to Hillary. I mean, she... Wakes in four hundred thousand, literally four hundred thousand dollars a day, doing, you know, doing gigs for for Goldman Sachs. Yes, and then she goes up to Boston and gives a speech about inequality. <laughs> what you can get away with today is amazing, and then again, that's because of the people's ignorance, their lack of attention, the complicity of the mass. Now, at the same time, there are two potentially. Two features of the situation that potentially could serve the revival of progressive Democrats. One is that if you look at public opinion surveys, which I don't place that much stock, but they do useful in some respects, and you look at ten leading public issues of the day, and you look where the locus of opinion is, it is actually closer to the position of progressive Democrats on everything from reining in the intelligence agencies, protecting Social Security, to, to gun yep. on eight of the ten, I think. It's closer to liberal, not just Democratic, not just the White House, which is not really liberal, liberal position, than it is not just to the far right, but to what's become sort of the mainstream bipartisan political. And Politico's clearly, position. in in the t- and so this notion that you, you 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 can't win an election unless you buy into this Reagan view in the United States is pernicious. And 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 Barack Obama has bought into it. You see it given just leaving aside for his moment his own beliefs, which are quite conservative and traditional. But his political judgments, it is clear that he believes just the opposite. He believes the heart of America is Reaganite. And it's not true. No, it's certainly not true. And that's all people see. But again, in the 2014 election, in virtually every referenda question uh, in every state, it was a liberal position. This is what people are for, but the, who is articulating that? Nobody. And this is based on a turnout of 34%. Yeah. Well, what's going to motivate... And we do know yeah. that the people inclined to, to be liberal uh, turn out for all fewer elections, and generally speaking, all elections. Yes. Uh, a lower percentage of them actually turn out in the vote than do people on ah. the rightest Oh, interesting. So if you could mobilize the people or get them to vote in the numbers they did in 2008, at least, that improves more favorable conditions for the success of, of liberal Democratic candidates. People the other have... thing is, again, this 
house on fire and so forth. This is true. I think, you know, the, this, this, the, the ignorance factor, the inattentiveness factor, and so forth, can create circumstances that are amenable to any political entrepreneur. But it's only the people on the far right who've tried and successfully have exploited it. Everybody who gets in there and sounds like he knows what he's talking about and says things that resonate with the public and conveys his education is going to do well. I mean, look at the other successes that one person, a freshman senator, uh, Elizabeth Warren is having. Right. That's in a couple of, you know, in, what is it, 18 months' time. That is amazing, and I think that's something. How, how the Democratic establishment can cannot see that. I mean, they put her in some allegedly leadership well, position. I, I'm thinking maybe to, to just uh, throw the liberals and the real base of the Democratic Party a little bit of crumb to, to quiet them down because they're so well, interested in taking the money from the corporate interests and the banking interests. The, the role of corporations in, in campaign finance. Yeah. And, and the truth is, let's, if you set on a course of appeasing a powerful interest and right. you do it for 30 years and you curry favor with them the way the Clintons have done, right? Yes. And you become financially dependent on them for your campaign. And if you have nothing to say, so you need the money all the more, since people will, you can only get elected through image mongering rather than saying things yeah. that move. Right. <laughs> if you follow that course for years and years and years, you're gradually going to begin to identify with the people who provide you with that money, mm. and you're gradually going to assimilate their worldview. That's why I think, as I said, in that piece, you know, appeasement eventually leads to conversion, leads to conversion, and much of the Democratic Party has been converted to the, the business-centric notion of, and philosophy of American public affairs. And it just so whether that's literally spelling out in psychological terms and I was really immaterial. The point is that functionally most of the Democratic Party has sold out. And I just I mean, when you talk to average people, not your, you know, real political types, people don't feel that it's important to them to participate in government. They they've gotten the sense, I mean, right. as you say, for like thirty years People are worn down. They don't feel connected to this government. That's a real radical and, I think, really disastrous change. The idea of government of, by, and for the people, the notion of self-government. The Democrats are just not talking about that. And people are only going to be motivated if they're motivated, You know, if they feel some personal stake in it. We're talking about the uh, political suicide of the Democratic Party. Our guest on the Burt Cohen Show today is, is Michael Brenner. And one of the things you said, and I don't want to miss this in the article about uh, Democrats committing political suicide, you said, quote, we are witnessing a great contest that will determine the American destiny for generations to come. One side is mobilized for total war. The other isn't even sure that the battle is engaged. Unquote. Surely there must be some degree of hope that Democratic activists, those 
who, who really matter in a primary recognize the abject failure to lead and to speak the truth. Do you see a chance that enough activist Democrats, grassroots Democrats, might be trying to emerge from this self-induced coma, this course of suicide? Is there any kind of hope at all here? Well, no, I really don't. <laughs> Uh, it's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> to be honest, to be honest with you, it's not that there aren't people, you know, like you know, like yourself, example of it, uh, who are distraught and doing engage themselves and, and, and support efforts at often at the state local level or state level on 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 specific but important issues. Uh, but a mass movement, no. I mean, the time for that, of course, was at the height of the financial crisis. Yeah, true. And again, the hmm. Democrats at every level did nothing to organize it, to channel it, to mobilize it, to, to use it to their political advantage as well as the you know, well-being of, uh, of, of, of the country. Now, I still think there is, as, I said, as we said a moment ago, a latent discontent that could be mobilized and could could be focused, even though it would have to overcome two obstacles. One is the fact that the inattentiveness of people, and there's so many distractions out there, yeah. and they've fed all this garbage and spend their time watching the Kardashians on TV and all the rest of it, uh, and football every night of the week, except Tuesday or Wednesday, an oversight that I'm sure will be dealt with in the next year or two. <laughs> and, you know, if nothing else, you know, Division 5A Texas High School football championships will be started on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, that, yeah, that passivity and attentiveness, distraction, uh, caught up in, 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 in pop culture. That's a fact, and is a real drag system, and a drag on every effort to, to activate Americans to interest themselves in, in public uh, in public affairs. Well, it does, and it disproportionately anesthetizes uh, those who would be likely to support Democrats. Mm. That's simply the you know the demographic reality of it, but. That's why, I mean, the, 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 the catalyst has to come from the top. There has to be a figure yes, uh, who really gets to people. Now, Obama did that to some considerable extent in 2008. He yes. did it on the basis of personality. And BS rhetoric is true. True. BS but he, sure. he, he did it. And yes. if think of somebody who, who had the, that talent, uh, combining it and reinforcing it by actually talking concretely about things that trouble people. Well, here in New Hampshire, the 2016 presidential season has already begun. And well, you guys just go round the calendar. I know. It's, it's forever, 24-7. And as the ski resorts dry up, what other industry are you going to have? Uh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, we sell a lot of beer and pizza during those times. But I have to tell you, Bernie Sanders has been here a few times, and if people can get past the, oh, he can't win, and actually listen to him, 
I'm I have some degree of optimism that you know he can actually yeah. connect with people, but but we will find out. Michael Brenner, thank you so much for being with us. Very informative, not particularly uh, uh, optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the the last word, encouraging word, is it could always be worse. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael Brenner, see- look, we've got to keep our spirits up. We've got to see the humorous side of it. I mean. Let's face it, no political system in the world's history has provided as much comic entertainment as the United States today. So we're still number one. (laughs) Or we've become number one. Well, that's encouraging. Thank you so much for being with us on the Burt Cohen Show. (laughs) Thank you, Burt. All right. Thanks a lot. Look at me. supposed to be Who am I supposed to be Look at me What am I supposed to be What am I supposed to be Look at me Nobody else can see Just you and me